Well, good morning, church. It is great to be with you as our seven to ten-year-olds get to walk out once again. A deep thanks to all of those who serve our children and pour into the next generation and their desire to love Jesus. As they're going out, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Titus. Titus. For those of you who are guests with us, we take books of the Bible and we walk through them uh, verse by verse, uh, believing that the Bible is God's Word. It's not just educational material. The living God is alive and at work on the pages of this book. And so we encounter Him in His Word. And so we're inviting you to experience the Lord with us as we look at the book of Titus. And we are in Titus chapter 2. Titus, Titus chapter 2. We're looking at verses 11 through 15. 11 through 15. So I want to read these words and then I'll pray and then we'll dive right in as we consider the grace of God appearing. Our only hope is grace. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15. In honor of a dear brother here, if you're there, say I'm there. There you go. Verse 11, chapter 2 of Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul tells Titus, declare these things. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, we are here this morning gathered not only with each other, but we confess we're with you. You are with us. You are the one that satisfies every craving and longing of our heart. You have declared the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is yet to come. You are in control. and You are a good Father. Father, we want to know You more in this moment. And I ask for those who do not know Jesus that, God, You would change their hearts on the spot. Father, I pray that because of Your abundant, amazing, all-sufficient grace. You would change us all and give us hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few more comforting words are there than to hear, I am for you and I am with you. I am for you and I am with you. We've all heard the stories of the little child who ran away from their mom or dad while they were maybe at a mall or in a shopping area and the panic ensues and no one can find this little one. And the parent sees at a distance, finally, this child sitting over in the on the edge, tears flowing down, obviously stricken with fear. Where is my mom? Where is my dad? And then that parent rushes over there and appears on the scene. And almost in an instant, it's this sense that the fear, the struggle, the strife, the tears, they are swallowed up by the embrace of that little, by that parent who holds that little one. And that parent says, I'm here. I'm here. You don't have to be afraid. I love you. I'm here and I'm for you. There's a newfound strength for that little one under the parent's embrace. Many of us have experienced working really hard for something 
and really wanting somebody to celebrate it with us, right? If you've ever had kids or you've experienced this some yourself, maybe you worked really hard at a school play or you've worked really hard and now you're going to go out and compete in some sporting event or you've worked really hard to complete your education and now you're going to walk in graduation. Almost in every situation, you can tell if someone who is about ready to experience those things is a little anxious. Because while they're supposed to be performing, they keep looking out at the crowd. And they keep looking out because they really want to see those people that love them present. And they're distracted. They can't focus because they just want to know somebody is there to support them and love them. And then when they look out and they catch the gaze, it's like the fear drains, the encouragement rises, the adrenaline comes back, the joy is restored. And why is that? Why is it you can go from anxiety-ridden, mind-distracted moments to kind of encouragement, peace, and joy? Because presence matters. And a presence that says, I support you. I love you. I'm for you. It changes things. It changes things. When someone cheers you on and reminds you that you are not alone, and especially if in the middle of mistakes or struggles or imperfections, you hear these words, I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm on this journey with you. You're not alone. Hope begins to rise in the heart. In the book of Titus, Paul is telling Titus to remind this network of churches. This network of churches on the Greek island of Crete. It's on this island where they are swimming in sexual immorality, the worship of false gods. They believe that Zeus was born on this island. That's how steeped into mythology this world was. Many Cretan men were mercenaries for hire. And Paul even confirms Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. what it says in the text. Paul says, yep, that's what they are. It's in that context that Titus is to instruct the followers of Jesus that they're not alone. You're not alone. You're not fighting this battle alone. He says, grace has appeared. Grace has appeared. This gospel of grace is not just a right worldview where you check off the boxes like, yeah, that is more correct than that is more correct. The gospel of grace is a gospel of power that saves and transforms lives and gives you everything you need to walk in his ways. But when the world is so dark, it feels so daunting. When the pressures are so heavy, it feels impossible. And he wants you to know grace has appeared. You're not alone. There's someone in your corner. There's someone who has shown up to every event and will never leave you. Who is your biggest cheerleader and who is always for you. Grace has appeared. Why do they need this encouragement? Because if you remember from the first 10 verses of chapter 2, Titus has given them some requirement. And if you're sober, aware of your own struggles, if you're humble and really understand what is being asked of them, it just feels like too much. How can I be self-controlled at every turn? How can I walk in godliness, not just in public, but in private, in everyday life? How can I be steadfast in the midst of suffering? How can I be respectful to those who are in authority over me? And so in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, he is commanding the church that their lives should stand in such contrast to the outside world that it is said to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The way that we're supposed to live, the way the church there in Crete was supposed to live was to be so strikingly different that that beauty was only explained by Jesus being inside of them. Their conduct was to be a platform so that the onlooking world would say, something is different 
And they would be able to testify, my Savior is good and powerful and real. He was not just addressing act good at religious occasions. He addressed everyday life. And He addressed the points when we are most tempted to give up. He addressed our suffering. And He says, walk in a different way. That feels impossible. And so the next words out of His mouth are, therefore, when I tell you to walk like this, you can because grace has appeared. Grace is on the scene. What is grace? I told my kids from a very young age, grace is God's help. It's His help. You want a little bit deeper, deeper understanding? It's His help that we don't deserve. It's not help given because we have done a good thing and therefore He helps us. It's not help given to those who are more lovely than their neighbor. It's help to the undeserved and the unlovely. It's unmerited help, favor, kindness. And embedded in the word grace is not a mere little trickle from a faucet. It is this sense of God's grace is an abundant grace. A full and overflowing grace. So when he says grace has appeared, he's not speaking to something where it's mostly you and then he just comes alongside. It is him. And our hope is found there. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says those very words, for the grace of God has appeared. God has found you. He has come. His grace is not a course that makes you smarter or a weight program that makes you stronger, or a diet program that makes you healthier. God's grace is about God Himself doing something inside of you and never leaving you. It's grace. His help. Him with you. All times. That's what Paul wants Titus to focus on. That we can have hope of a shockingly different and beautiful life because grace has appeared. So we'll spend our time today looking at what kind of grace has appeared. What kind of grace has appeared? Summarize it in three phrases. Saving grace is on the scene. Training grace is here. Hope-giving grace is here. It, saving grace is grace that brings salvation. Training grace is grace that brings training and correction and discipline with love. Hope-giving grace is grace that brings hope and helps our hearts wait for our true home. Bottom line, we're needy. I think that deserved an amen. We are needy. And the great news is, grace has appeared. Grace has appeared. Let's look at saving grace together. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says this, For the grace of of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, let's just understand something at the jump. When he's talking about grace appearing, he's not just talking about some random energy or force. He is literally speaking that Jesus Christ, the living Son of God, has appeared on the scene and is never leaving. This grace is a person. And this person is always with you. When he speaks of grace, he is speaking of the person who is perfect, Jesus Christ. Where do I get this? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9-10 through 10 tells us these things. Listen to this verse. This God who, verse 9, saved us and called us to a holy calling. And our salvation is not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and, what's the word? Grace which He gave us in something. Or should I say someone? Grace given in Christ Jesus. Before times eternal. Before the ages began. And which has now in time been demonstrated to us. Put on TV, so to speak. Through the, what's that word? Appearing. The same word. The appearing. The same idea. 
of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And when Christ Jesus appeared, he abolished death and brought life and immortality of light to light through the gospel. When Paul says to Titus, grace has appeared, he's saying, Christ Jesus has come. He is with you. The one who abolished sin and death, the one who gives life eternal, he has come. He's the one that has appeared. Our greatest need is not some abstract force. Our greatest need is a person. His name is Jesus. And this Christ has appeared bringing salvation. He is a Savior. And He saves people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Now when the text here says salvation, this idea here is that it is clear to the church in Crete that they are sinners that needed this salvation. The only way grace coming and bringing salvation is hopeful and helpful is that there is a clear awareness that you are wretchedly lost in your sin and cannot fix this problem. And so something has to change. There's an inability to pick up the weight that's crushing your chest. You will die unless something relieves the pressure. And that something is a someone, Jesus Christ. He has come. Our sins so wretched, the perfect Son of God had to leave glory and die in our place to bring us to God. This is what verse 14 of our passage teaches us. Look at what he says about this great salvation, about this great Savior. Jesus Christ, as we look at verse 14, Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, says this about this great salvation. And about this great Savior who died for us, here's the quote. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading to repentance. Were our sin not a reality, the perfect Son of God would not have had to come and give Himself up for us. Before it's ever a for us, it had to be done because we have done something to Him. We did this. It is done by us. We are the ones guilty. Our sins so wretched, a death sacrifice was required to bring justice to the world and to this situation. To bring life when I and you deserve death. The gospel is clear. Good news is only good news when the payment has been paid and sin has been taken care of. Sin requires a payment. And that payment has a severe degree of a death sacrifice and that sacrifice has to be spotless and pure. In order for our sin to be taken care of, death has to happen of one who is spotless and without blemish. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's why verse 14 is so precious. We are told the best news in the world, Jesus gave Himself up for us. Death. Death in our place. Able to save to the uttermost because Jesus gave Himself up. But it wasn't just the death of anything. It was the death of someone perfect enough to bear the weight of the Father's wrath and to take care of all of our sin. Nothing less than the perfect Son of God, nothing less than God Himself could stand this. And that's why it is so precious for us to understand who this passage describes is the one who gave Himself up for us. Verse 13, look at it with me. Who is the one who gave Himself up for us? It's the one who's going to appear again in glory 
but it is the one who is described as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know what? The grammar, and yeah, I just went grammar on you. The grammar of this passage demands that Jesus is God. You want to talk to a Jehovah's Witness and show them that their ways are false and invite them into a beautiful Savior that they do not know, this is the passage you can use. Because in this text, it is our great God and Savior, both adjectives describing Jesus Christ. The structure is completely clear. There's an article, and there are adjectives, and there's a noun. And the article compasses both God and Savior to describe Jesus. Jesus is God. And only a perfect sacrifice would have been enough to get rid of my sins against an infinitely perfect God. That's the good news. The good news is it has been done. It is finished. He is the one who gave himself up for us. So anyone in this room who does not know Jesus Christ, you suffer from what I suffered from, and it was the sin sickness of the cancer of the hardness of the human heart. And you are invited to receive this good news to change your world forever. The grace that brings salvation. You see what it says. Jesus gave His life to redeem us. You see that in verse 14. To make the full and sufficient payment so no more funds can be exacted for us. Nothing we can give is necessary for salvation. It's all of Christ. Our whole role is to receive Christ for us. And He bought us back to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us from our grossness for Himself. That we would be family. He would call us His own treasured possession. And that as His possession, we would all as one family be zealous, excited, passionate, hardworking, sacrificial for good work. Jesus did not leave us in the grossness of our sin to fend for ourselves. As we were walking towards an eternal judgment that we fully deserve, He gave Himself up for us. Dear friends, as I just sat and meditated on that phrase, it is in those words where you find love. Love. The love that you're tempted to question when you suffer. The love that you're tempted to wonder, where is it when you feel really weary and down? He gave himself up for us. Paid in full, and he is tattooed on our chest. Mine. You are his. Treasured, loved, adored, sung over, fought for. This is our great God. And the only response to that kind of grace is a bowed heart. A humble, bowed heart. All hubris, all arrogance, all look at me is all drained out. And the only thing you can do is to fall at His feet and say, that is a Savior. Grace has appeared. And He changes lives. I can't do what He did. And so I receive His love for me. That is the call today. Receive His love for you. Day by day, watch Him work. Who is the salvation for? It says He's bringing salvation in verse 11 for all people. Why does He say that? Because on the island of Crete in these churches, they were telling Gentiles they had to become like Jews. They were telling Gentiles that they had to look like Jews physically through circumcision and they had to participate in all of these Jewish rituals in order to be accepted by God. That is heresy. It is wrong. It is taking Jesus, giving himself up for us and saying, no, it wasn't quite enough. I need to add to it. And Paul says, no. This salvation is for all people, Jew and Gentile. And what has he just done in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10? 
He has instructed older men and older women. He has instructed younger men and younger women. And so he is saying all types of people. Nobody escapes those categories. You're either older or you're younger, okay? You choose where you want to put yourself. And you are male or female. Those are facts. All people. He brings salvation to you. If you will humble your heart, confess your sin, receive his freeness of grace. This is saving grace. And the grace of Jesus that has appeared, it's not only saving grace, but it is training grace. Look at verse 12 with me. For the grace of God has appeared, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This word for training, it's the word used for discipline. And it can have both stop doing this connotations and, hey, be disciplined to participate in this. Most of the time when you hear discipline, you only think of stop doing this, but it is positive put on this. It's all encompassed in this idea of training. And this is training grace. Grace has appeared to train you and I to correct us, to discipline us. It's correcting grace. It's guiding grace because that's what love does. You know, if you have someone competing in sports, let's say a competitive runner, in order to genuinely compete, you have to stay away from certain things. Stay away from unhealthy certain foods. Stay away from substances and drugs. Stay away from activities that are harmful to you. And you must also be disciplined to do other things. Get enough sleep. Exercise. Build up your stamina. Stretch. This training many times is called the discipline of a runner. What's being spoken of here, it is having discipline in order to live the life that God has given us. But how many of us have tried? How many of us have tried the exercise plans and we didn't quite carry it all the way through? Or we've said, yes, New Year's, going for it. Here it goes, only to realize we didn't quite make it like we thought we would. That is the human heart, and that's why we need grace. We need this training grace. He is promising us that we aren't left alone to look more like Him. Now, growing up, I was what some people from the country might say, I was a piece of work. That means I was hard-headed, stubborn, and in need of much correction. My parents would say an out loud amen. And there were times I would get rightfully spanked, and other times I would have things taken away from me. I remember there was one time when I began to complain that I didn't have enough clothing to wear. I didn't like the clothes that were in my closet. I didn't like what they had provided for me, and so I complained. My parents decided, well... If you don't like what we have given you, then what we will do is we will take away everything that you have and we will tell you what to wear until we think that it's okay. I, w I don't know when I was, but that was kind of embarrassing. <laughs> that was terrifying is what that was. My parents are going to dress me at like 12 or 13. Like, not like literally dress me, but pick out my clothes, you know. It was weird. And you know what was also awful? is whether they were spanking me or whether they had all this creative discipline, they would tell me this phrase, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I'm like, my rear end is stinging and I'm embarrassed to no end and you tell me this hurts you more than it hurts me, whatever. And then I became a parent. I became a parent and I realized that when you're not in the flesh, in your godly moments, you don't want to do anything that hurts your kids. You love them. 
And yet, you know, if you do not discipline them, the alternative is far worse. A self-directed life, a self-autonomous life, a life that thinks that it is in charge and it knows best is a life much worse than the temporary pain of sting or embarrassment. And so love, not meanness, discipline. This training grace, this disciplining grace, is a grace of love. It is a grace of love. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6 says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, don't regard lightly the discipline. There's our word. You could put in there the training grace of our Lord. Don't be weary when you are reproved, when you're instructed or corrected by Him. Because the Lord gives training grace. He disciplines the one he, what? Loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. He goes on to say, if he did not discipline us, he would be treating you like an illegitimate child. But you are not. You've been adopted, purchased by his son's own blood. You are loved, and therefore, he gives training grace. He corrects. He guides. He says, don't go this way. Stop going this way. As Pastor John Piper says, he clogs your way and frustrates your day so that you might be wholly his. And then he says, walk this way. This is the best way. Because we need training grace. Training grace, verse 12, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It's not just a fighting at godless actions. It's a fighting at the heart level when the passions are given to things that are destructive. You and I need grace. We need grace when the world comes at us and tells us to lust after these things and that's where true satisfaction is found. We are inundated, indoctrinated, overwhelmed by a, quote, worldly wisdom that tells us, walk this way and you will be happy. Brokenness has become so normal that the church begins to say it's just okay. And in Crete, like you saw in the book of Judges, they were wise in their own eyes. And if you want to read a book that is filled with grossness and pain and disturbing images, you read the book of Jew, uh, Judges. And the book of Judges has as its theme over and over, and they did what was what right in their own eyes. And yet, the world tells us. The world tells us that money is the path to happiness. We are told to have more of the nicest possessions. That's the path towards peace. We are told retirement is about coasting and me time. We are told that differences are bad and that the only solution to someone who is different than us is canceling or if someone has hurt us, we have to seek revenge. That's how you deal with hurt. We are told lying is okay as long as it's not that bad. And who knows what that means? We live in a culture that glamorizes the sexual exploits of people with no regard to marriage or commitment. It's the normalizing of the one-night stand and friends with benefits. The needless shackles, they'll say, of commitment. The taking of a wonderful gift in marriage and turning it into an obsession of sexual pleasure and the objectification of another human being. It's killing people. We are told gender is fluid. 
We have a culture that signs off and sanctions marriage between the same sex or gender. We are in a do what is right for you with less regard for others. What trumps loves for others is yourself. Jesus says the exact opposite. Joy is only completed when you consider others more significant than yourself. But we are told the exact opposite. Then we are told to live beyond our human limits, and it's glamorized. Our American culture tells us our value and significance is in production, not in personhood. Workaholism is commended in some circles. We have stopped learning to value sitting still. Sitting still with Jesus can feel like a waste of time. It's, it's not really producing. Oh, but how we don't see with the eyes of grace. Take heart. Take heart. Grace has appeared. Underneath it all, there is a joyful, disorienting, countercultural current that Jesus has laid out in His Word. He lays out in the midst of this world that, that says, do what is right in your own eyes. He says, I must be on the throne of your heart. I am your wisdom. I am your righteousness. I am your peace. I accept you by faith alone. I create your purpose. I give you joy. Anything else will lead towards a path of destruction. Christian, we are being lied to. Lied to by a surrounding culture like the Christians in Crete. And it's not okay. And what Titus has been tasked to do in this book is to tell the church Christ's good and right way. And not to remove the church from the world but that they would live such a shocking life of love and devotion to Jesus and to one another and to the outside world that they would be like a light that shines against the dark backdrop of the Cretan culture. And their conduct was to adorn and to show off as beautiful the doctrine of God. They were to be a community distinct from the world, but for the world. And that's why Titus is told by Paul, in verse 15, look at verse 15 of our passage. That's why he is told, be firm about this. Declare these things. Don't back off from the hard sayings. Encourage or exhort and rebuke with nece when necessary because you have authority. He's been sent there to put pastors over these churches and until then, he has got the authority. Let no one disregard you because if these things are disregarded in the church, the church implodes and it gets a bad name in public. Don't let anyone disregard these things. But take heart, grace has appeared. It feels impossible. How am I not swept up with the wave of culture? Because grace has appeared. Training grace, correcting grace, disciplining grace, guiding grace. So dear friends, old, young, male, female, follow Jesus. Follow Him in this present age, it says. And you will have all the grace you need for everything you've been asked to do. Resurrection power, alive and at work, in your heart. The one who, verse 14, gave Himself up for us. He purchased that we will be delivered from all lawlessness and purified for Himself. This is the grace we've been given. Why is this passage in the Bible? Why is this in the Bible? It's so you wouldn't lose heart. So you wouldn't feel hopeless when you hear commands, and if you're genuinely honest, your life doesn't match up. This passage is in the Bible so you wouldn't lose hope. Rather than having to like say, oh, my sin is not that bad, you can be honest maybe for the first time. You can say, no, I really do have a problem with this. My mouth is a problem. My angry heart is a problem. My bitterness is a problem. 
My breaking my word is a problem. My lust is a problem. And that is where change begins, is when you begin to say, it's, it's here. Grace is here. I am broken, but grace is here. When you are guilty and you feel too weak to make progress, when you're more mindful of money than your master, when you know you are motivated to love everything else but the Lord, you don't have to be frozen. Grace has shown up. You don't have to be discouraged. Our Lord is near. He is near. And so, how does this practically work? I really sat and thought on this, meditated on it. How does this practically work? I'm talking about saving grace. I'm talking about training grace. What does it look like to tap into that? The word that comes to my mind is awareness. Awareness. Whenever you have an emotion of sadness or fear or anxiety or dread or discouragement, what this passage is meant to do is to press in on you to become now aware grace is here. Jesus is on the scene. I'm not left to my own self. Awareness is the first step to tap into the power that is found here. I think of Lamentations chapter 3. Do you remember that? Lamentations chapter 3. Train wreck of a situation. Horrible. Tears. Talking about suffering like chewing on gravel. And he says this, But this I call to mind, what? Therefore I have hope. This I call to mind, therefore I have hope. That is what Paul is doing right here. Titus. Help them to call to mind grace. Jesus is on the scene. You're not alone. And if you're ever in despair, it's because I, you, we have forgotten that Christ is with us. That He's enough. The way you tap into it is to set your mind on things above. Seek the things that are above. It is there where you can begin to remember you're not alone. Jesus has shown up to your graduation. He's on the front row. He's louder than everybody else. And he says, that's mine. I love him. And you forget that. When the world is louder than your heart, and when your heart is louder than the Scriptures. Dear friends, and when you then remember grace, I pray you just remember, lean. Lean into his arms. Remember and lean. Leaning is trusting. If I fell back right now, it would hurt. That curtain is not going to catch me. I don't trust it. But to fall into the arms of Jesus, to lean into what you are setting your mind on, this is where transformation happens. This is what Paul is telling Titus to do. Not only tell them of grace, but remind them that this God is trustworthy. He's trustworthy. And that's what leads us into this last idea of hope-giving grace. He's trustworthy. And He has appeared once, and He will appear again. He's trustworthy. Look at verse 13 with me, and we're done. The grace of Jesus has appeared, and it is hope-giving grace. It says, for grace has appeared waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You have to agree with me, waiting is one of the most painful things you can do. Is it not? You're waiting to take the test. It feels miserable. You're waiting to get the results back. That's grueling. Waiting to see if your kid's going to make it home safely. Waiting to see if God will answer the prayer for the wayward child to turn to Christ. Waiting for the results of that medical procedure. Waiting what seems like the never-ending waiting game of big decisions. Should I do this or should I do that? But when you look at how hard waiting is, it makes a lot of sense why it's good news that grace has appeared. Grace has appeared. 
we have a blessed hope. And it's a hope because he's appeared once, he will appear again. Why does God make us wait? Have you ever asked that? He could just do it. He could give us the answer right now. To that big decision, right now. It seems like that would be the most loving path, don't you think? I don't need to wait three days for the test results. Just tell them to me. And he can do that. Why? Why waiting? Because waiting teaches us longing. And longing is what we're meant to do on this earth. We were created to long for Jesus. Long to be with Him. And all this earthly waiting is teaching us that this world is not our home. We were made for another world. Where does our hope come from in our waiting? It's not the power of positive thinking. It's not our intelligence. It's not playing the odds. Our hope is that God can be trusted. He's tender in His mercy. We wait for our blessed hope. He will return. Those of you who are suffering and waiting through tears, I want you to know when the pain feels suffocating, I promise you from the Scriptures, a bruised reed He will not break and a faintly burning wick He will not quench. He strengthens. And as Charles Spurgeon says, the tide will not always recede. It will come back in. Grace has appeared. You're not alone. And so what is our hope, dear friends? Our hope is a blessed hope, a happy hope. It's when we are with Him. Our present day joy is rooted in our future home. Our present day obedience is never meant to be far removed from our heavenly home. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our longing. As Pastor Hunter shared with us, one of my heroes of the faith, one who really helped me grow in the Lord is Tim Keller. And so there was a sadness. I got to meet him once and talk to him one time. And there was a sadness in my heart when I got to think about his passing. And another mentor friend of mine, Pastor John Piper, said that he had a correspondence with Dr. Keller at the end of his life. And he said they talked about Luke 10. And in Luke 10, what has just happened is the 72 are sent out. And they're returning with joy. And it says, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. They were subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. They were celebrating all these wonderful works that had happened. And here's what the text says. Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven in the Lamb's book of life. This is our blessed hope. This is our blessed hope. One day we will all face death. And we will all be ushered into the presence of the living God. And as Pastor John went on to say, we should be more thrilled that we are saved than that we are successful. And we should take more delight in our Savior than in His service. So that we can say in our last day, here's what Tim Keller's son wrote about his dad. Dad waited until he was alone with mom. She kissed him on the forehead and he breathed his last breath. We take comfort in some of his last words. There is no downside for me leaving. Not in the slightest. Set your heart there, friends. Set your mind there. And it will change your life now. Grace has appeared. Saving grace, training grace, and hope-giving grace 
that will get us to the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And I pray that you will help us trust you. Help us call to mind in the middle of our anxious moments that you are with us. Grace has appeared. Jesus Christ, not simply outside of us, but living inside of us by His Spirit. Father, I ask that we would call to mind saving, training, and hope-giving grace, and we would lean into You, saying we trust You. When our hearts aren't there, Father, help us to confess. Confess our pains, our struggles, our difficulties. Confess that you are enough. Right now, for just a few moments, we're going to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. The time when we reflect on our Savior and what he has done in dying in our place. And so just sit still for just a few seconds. And both confess your sin. And confess your faith. Confess your belief in His goodness, in His love, in His presence with you. Whatever God has brought to mind, I trust that His Holy Spirit is at work right now in your heart. Walk towards Him. Receive His love for you. Ask Him to help you in that area that feels so impossible, so daunting. Allow Him to correct you, but do so because He is bringing you into His presence because He loves you. Let's sit in this moment of stillness right now and let's give our hearts in reflection before we take the Lord's Supper.